The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. You know, with all of the work that you put in saving for retirement, you'd think spending that money should be pretty easy. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Retire With Style. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my trusted companion and great acquaintance, Wade Fa. Hey, everyone. <laughs> so I'm an acquaintance now, huh? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, can anyone really be? How many friends can you really have in this world, Wade? Work colleague. Let's, let's be honest. Yes, I have my work colleague, Wade <laughs> Fowl, my associate, my, <laughs> my bon vivant confidant. Uh, that's going nowhere. Let me just let me just intro this thing and get going. Uh, so today we're going to continue with our Q&As and we'll be talking about safe withdrawal rate and annuity questions. What do you think, Wade? Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, sounds like chocolate chip cookies. All right, let's get right to it. First question. I'll, I'll start it off here. I have been interested in an immediate annuity QLAC. Are those two things that go together? Well, that's, yeah, that's the whole, it, yeah, so QLAC <laughs> is an immediate annuity because immediate means you annuitize immediately. Oh, okay. But all right, all right, all right I see what you're saying. But okay. You can see where I was like, what? <laughs> that's the problem. Immediate right. and deferred means two different things in the yeah. annuity world. Yes. It's, okay. You're it's a, it's it's annuitizing day one, but it's, it's not, you're not like an annuity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have in, I have been interested. Let's take two. <laughs> <laughs> I have been interested in an immediate annuity QLAC. Two, one, diversify my income streams since I do not have a pension, but a lump sum that depends on market conditions. Two, help alleviate longevity risk since I have been waiting to take Social Security at seventy years this coming May. And three, the two hundred thousand that's the QLAC is qualified and would not be counting towards my RMDs that I will start in three years, age 73, until I reach age 85, and will only count the RMD amount that comes out each year as income, period. Question, is it better to keep the 200000 in the market and have higher taxable income or buy the QLAC? Thanks. Take it away, Mr. Fowle. Yeah, this is the way the question is worded at the end. It's the classic. It depends <laughs> what you're more comfortable with. Um, but right. Have you taken the RISA? <laughs> <laughs> the, the qualified longevity annuity contract, uh, it's a deeply deferred income annuity. And so as the person is describing it. Here, no, no, no. It's a deeply deferred immediate that's right. Income. <laughs> but you're going to purchase this at age 70 turn on, with it turning on income at age 85. So there's a 15-year deferral period. And that tax benefit being addressed here is 
that 200,000 is now taken out of the RMD picture so that you're not having to pay the, the RMDs on it between ages 73 and 85. And then once those income payments begin at 85, it's, it's taxable. All, all annuity payments coming out of a retirement account are taxable ordinary income. So you do get the little benefit there in terms of deferring some of your required minimum distributions. It is an immediate annuity. It's protected lifetime income that begins later in life, which reduced the costs. For $200,000, you're going to get a nice chunk of income starting at age 85. And uh, the other benefit, and, and also, yes, helping to manage longevity risk. Uh, in a way, you can kind of, okay, if I can make it to 85, I'll be okay after that because alongside Social Security and other, any pensions or anything, I now have this QLAC turning on as well. It's going to provide me some additional income. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the case was made in, in a strong manner for the QLAC. Then the question is really just taking this turn of, well, should I do that or should I leave my money invested in the market? <laughs> and that's where yeah. uh, I would I would start with where you start off that point, which is this is the biggest issue that the biggest misconception or the biggest marketing kind of judo that that they like to play with us on is. An annuity and our investments are two separate things. Think of an annuity as an insurance product and think of an investment as an investment, right? And so the reality is your decision to get the QLAC is based on an insurance decision that you're making, which is I don't want to worry about running out of money when I, you know, before I die. And a lot of folks refer to QLACs as almost like a, a dementia kind of insurance as well, where as you get in that those later stages, in case anything happens, you've kind of automated things, right, for the rest of your life. And so you have to be comfortable. Those have to be the salient reasons why you do a QLAC. It's not a, hey, will I get more of this and that? that that's not the way to look at it. It's not, an, it's not an investment product. It's an insurance product. Now, that being the case, having something like that in place, the question I wouldn't ask is, hey, what can I make more as opposed to putting $200,000 in that now and not really seeing those benefits for 15 years? Can I make more with that $200,000 for 15 years? And what I could? That's not the way I would look at it. I would look at because they're two different things, right? I would look at it as that's insurance. So now you've protected yourself from, you know, age 85 onward. And so the question is, can you potentially be more aggressive with your investments if you wanted to, knowing that you have that safety net down the line? I would venture to say the answer could probably would be most likely uh, more yes than no. Let me say it like that. And that's the dynamic that those are the trade-offs I would be asking myself. Wait. Yeah. And, and you're not necessarily sacrificing a lot of the upside in those early years. And if you end up living a very long time, uh, you could potentially leave a larger legacy through the use of a QLAC and thinking in particular, allocating from bonds to purchase the QLAC, not necessarily allocating from stocks to purchase the QLAC. But if your retirement income style is more total returns, you're probably going to lean more towards just feeling more comfortable having the money in the market and not making that irreversible commitment to the QLAC. If your income protection, the QLAC can be a great way to build that longevity uh, risk protection and insurance into the plan. And even if your time segmentation where you think about buckets, you might really frame that QLAC as here's a bucket to cover my long-term needs. Uh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. So I, I think you'll see the QLAC would probably appeal the most to income protection. Uh, 
uh, maybe second place time segmentation. It could be a tool to consider with risk wrap as well. And then it would be total returns is the least likely to resonate with the story of what the QLAT can offer to the retirement plan. No, and wait, I'll bring my own personal stuff. As I'm layering my stuff in, and I fell in that income protection bracket, I'm more looking at a QLAC to give me that layer down the line. Although, you know, you're limited by 200000 I wish I could put more, frankly. But for argument's sake, the QLAC, and as I mentioned in the last episode, just jamming on that HSA as, as much as possible. Those are kind of going to be cornerstones for me. So, But I'm not looking at the QLAC as oh, okay, uh, it's going to outperform the S&P or, or anything like that. I don't I don't care. It's, it's an insurance thing that I can lock in. I don't have to worry about. I don't want, like, even my wife worrying about if something were to happen to me, you know, at a certain age, I don't want her worrying about, oh, but the market. I, I want to make sure we can get something going. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the payout would be from age 70. I know just with interest rates having come up, I checked recently about if you bought a QLAC in your mid-40s and didn't get the cash refund and had it turn on at age 85, I think the payout rate was more than 100%. So you'd be looking at more than $200,000 a year of income. Now, that's not inflation adjusted. And that's really the only downside potentially with the QLAC is you know what the income payments will be in nominal terms, but... Who knows what inflation is going to be over the next however many years to know how much purchasing power you're going to be generating with that. Uh, well, that uh, this this podcast is recorded the day after Powell's speech on inflation. So, wait, why don't you give us your thoughts on what Powell said and <laughs> what the minutes what the That's minutes covered and, and where you think things are going? Our interest rates did not change. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, what is the best way to use a SPIA? And that's, again, we're using acronyms, so single premium immediate annuity. What is the best way to use a SPIA in combination with an FIA, fixed index annuity? And is it better to invest a large sum in a FIA at one time or a little each month? And with this question, we were talking a little bit before the episode, sometimes it's necessary to try to guess what's really being asked uh, but I can't do it with this question. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> like combining a SPIA with an FIA, there are two different types of annuities. I, I don't know if the question was trying to get at, should I use a SPIA or an FIA with a living benefit or whether maybe they were thinking the FIA is the living benefit or... Are you thinking uh, the island of Dr. Moreau? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm just <laughs> not entirely sure what to do with this question. That if if you're going the SPIA route, you probably don't also want a living benefit on the FIA, unless you're looking to blend your, your income. So part SPIA, part FIA with living benefit. But if you don't put the living benefit on the FIA, you're using it more as a, a bond alternative. And we talk about that a lot with the the time segmentation. It's potentially a way to fill those short-term spending buckets in a with tax deferral and then with a yield that may be competitive with anything bonds can provide. Uh, Let me ask you, let me ask it this way, just to see if it jiggers something in, in your head. Can an, does an FIA, could an FIA potentially have all the attributes of a SPIA and then some, hence just get an FIA? It may not pay out as much on a monthly basis because it's not maximizing the mortality credits as much as a SPIA, but it has some characteristics of a SPIA inside of an FIA where you don't see that the other way around. So you may be better off focusing on a FIA and triggering, 
you know, whatever writers you want that kind of give you more Spia-like characteristics. Yeah, yeah. The FIA with a lifetime income benefit behaves the same way as a Spia in terms of providing a guaranteed lifetime income. It actually has additional benefits because there's some liquidity. You can get the contract value back out if you decide you no longer want this. And you have some limited growth potential opportunities for the underlying asset. So in theory, the the payout rate on the FIA with living benefits should be lower than the payout rate on the SPIA. But in practice, sometimes you find the FIA with a living benefit may have a higher payout rate than the SPIA. And that's really a function of this idea of lapsation pricing, the uh, behavioral mistakes. <laughs> if you buy a SPIA, you can't make a mistake. You can't forget to turn on your income. You, you can't forget anything. <laughs> it's an irreversible decision. You're going to get those payments into your bank account every month, whether you yeah, like it or not. From day one, boom. With an FIA, you can pay for the protection for the living benefit and never actually get around to taking out the distributions you're allowed to take out. And so you're paying for insurance that you're not using. And the reality is a lot of people end up doing that. And so through competitive pricing, that can allow the payout rates on FIA living benefits to be higher than SPIA payout rates. So so if you can so find one of those, way. it's like, well, I've got a higher payout rate. I've got liquidity. I've got some potential growth in, in the underlying asset base in the early years. Um, it's wouldn't say a so no-brainer, but at least there's there's not a lot of downsides to going the FIA route in that sort of scenario. Exactly. I, I think that I, I think I want to say this in another way, because I think this is this lapsation thing is something that I'm not so sure it's fully appreciated. And so let's say actuarially the fair price for this FIA, this FIA, the the month they're gonna give you on a rider is like a dollar, right? Right? Actuarially speaking. But the folks that buy, if you buy a SPIA, you're, you're kind of getting an immediate, you're getting a pension from day one, so it's automated immediately. But a, an FIA, you're going to own it for a few years before you activate it or not, et cetera, et cetera. So even though actuarially they can say, I'm going to give you a dollar of income per year, they can put on their, you know, they can commit to, let's say, a dollar and four cents a year. Technically, they shouldn't. It shouldn't go that high, but they know that a lot of folks will buy the FIA, and after five, six years, they just don't support it anymore. Switch out of it once they're out of their grace period, or you know, they get out of it or whatever, and so they're never on the hook. The insurance company, so they can kind of give you more than the expectation is because people will lapse on the policy. There's a certain I don't know. There's a certain run rate. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Wait, do you know off the top of your head? No, I, I no, it's there's a certain the mechanism where yeah, there's a consistent <laughs> lapsing that that the insurance companies know that these folks will never you know will get out of it at some point because that's just how it is, and so they can they can promise you a little bit higher on the backs of those people. They're not dying, but Who they're pay for the living leaving. benefit and don't use it. Exactly, that's another way of looking at it. Now, the last part of that question is: Are they better off effectively? dollar cost averaging into an FIA or just cutting a check at once? Yeah. And that's where, again, I'm, I, that seems yeah, I to be a question that that's more relevant either. for a SPIA than an FIA. And, and with the SPIA, it's, do I want to purchase all the income at once or do I want to ladder in it over time? And there's benefits and disadvantages of each approach. If you ladder in over time, you get more diversification around the interest rate environment when you're making those purchases uh, you you get the optionality of if I buy it all today and then 
a year later I find out a terminal illness or something, I, I could stop making those additional purchases. So you maintain more flexibility by laddering into overtime. Uh, everything else being the same, you can make a case for considering laddering in purchases over time rather than doing it all at once. But with the FIA, because it's liquid and you have the flexibility, uh, there may be surrender charges if you want your money out. But I, I don't think the it's whatever you're thinking to put in an FIA, you, you can go ahead and, and do that. You don't really have to specifically think about laddering it in overtime unless you're wanting to get, I, I, maybe the, maybe the reason to ask this is since usually there's going to be terms that are very much linked to the date of purchase and then each anniversary subsequently, I guess you could benefit from diversifying on when those anniversary dates are. But, uh, yeah, actually, as I say that now, that might be a reason to ladder in the FIA purchases. <laughs> uh, but I, I think you do have flexibility. It's not obvious that one way or the other is going to be better for you. Okay. But it's a different dynamic than the folks that ask, do I dollar cost average into the market? It's just a different, right. you know, different consideration. Are you up for the challenge? We've just opened registration for Retirement Researchers Retirement Income Challenge starting on Monday, March 4th at noon Eastern. During this free four-day challenge with Wade, Alex, and I, you'll get to take the RISA and discover how you approach retirement income. Run and analyze your own funded ratio to understand where you stand relative to your retirement goals. And if you put in the work, Come out knowing how you can put yourself on a course to bridge that gap. We only have a limited number of seats in the challenge. So head over to resaprofile.com slash podcast to learn more and sign up today. Again, that's resaprofile.com slash podcast. See you in the challenge. Uh, okay. How do you suggest using a quote unquote safe plan withdrawal percentage rate? all other factors being equal. Supposing that inflation is presumed at 3% and there are no bear markets to contend with, none of which is probable. But I'm going to ask it anyways, I guess. <laughs> That's me. Uh, while, you know, while including the required minimum distribution as a factor. So how do you suggest choosing a safe plan withdrawal percentage rate when everything comes up roses? But and then but but there's RMDs and yeah and the RMDs. I, this kind of question comes up a lot with RMDs. And the general issue is you're not forced to spend your required minimum distributions. You're just forced to take it out of the retirement account. You can then reinvest it into a taxable brokerage account. The problem is you are forced to pay taxes on it. And that's where if you get an RMD surprise, you, you could be paying at a high effective marginal tax rate. Uh, with the impacts of Social Security and Medicare premiums and preferential income stacking uh, that you have to deal with in the tax code. But the RMD in and of itself doesn't do anything other than force you to pay some taxes. So it doesn't really impact safe withdrawal rate type questions or anything of that yeah. nature. It's just you do have to account for the fact I'm going to have to pay some taxes that does potentially create a little more sequence of returns risk for you. Although this, we're presuming there is no sequence of returns risk. Uh, but you just, you have to fund the taxes would be really the only consideration with, with this particular And then question. just reinvest it. And you, when you reinvest it, the cost basis 
is at that reinvestment rate. Well, that purchase. Yeah. Yeah. When it goes yeah, yeah, into yeah. the taxable account. Mm-hmm. There was another question too, before that one is also on a similar oh, thing. Yeah, missed it. Yeah. What is your strategy for sequence of returns risk when starting R&Ds? How much in cash or bonds to draw on in a down market? And I think it's kind of a related question. It's yeah, the, the practical impact of RMDs is you're going to have to pay some taxes. And a fixed expense that you have to take no matter what the market is doing can create sequence risk if you are having to take that distribution from a volatile portfolio. So there's a number of different ways to manage sequence risk. And whatever your preferred approach is, yeah, you, you want to be accounting for the fact that I'm going to have this required payment that not required. I'm going to have to spend from my assets to pay taxes on my RMDs. So I want to consider how can I manage sequence risk for that distribution I need to pay my taxes with. I, th- I think the, the most important part of these two questions for me, you said it briefly, but I, I think that's that would be my first concern. Secondarily, I'd maybe worried about the questions that they have, but the first concern is, you have to take those distributions because the government wants their money back, you know, on the tax deferral, right? Eventually, they want it back and RMDs is developed so that they take back each year relative to when you die, you've been paid in full, right? They are paid in full. So that's one of those things. So they're going to want their taxes. Clients a lot of times think they have to spend it. But no, as Wade pointed out, you just have to take it out because, you know, pay the taxable portion on that. And then, the, you know, that moment you can just put it in a taxable account. So you're invested again. To me, the more important question to be asking is how does that play into higher, you know, your social security and, and, and such and such. So you can give yourself the best possible chance to be in the lowest tax bracket while you're, while you're doing some significant harvesting of those RMDs. It's really more a tax game question for me to make it more efficient than worrying about, you know, what's the right, you know, safe withdrawal rate around this because – you know, of all these things that they, they put in. I don't know. Wait, thoughts? No, no I, I think you, you nailed it there. And it's not, it, yeah, the, it's more of a tax question. It's not a safe withdrawal rate question. And, and the only reason it would impact safe withdrawal rates is just because of this idea that you have to account for having some distributions to pay taxes that you wouldn't have had if, if RMDs didn't exist. That's its only practical the, impact on, on sequence risk and safe withdrawal rates. Yeah, and the other thing I would say too, and this goes back to more uh, the semantics, I personally don't like the phrase safe withdrawal rate. There is no safe withdrawal rate on volatile assets. Just call it withdrawal rate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, being, I'm being very, I'm, I'm being nitpicky and I'm being too cute by half. I get it. But I, I don't want to evoke the word safe when it's total return. Yeah. And, and to be fair, this question did have safe in parentheses, which yeah, we yeah, yeah, I get it, I get when it, we but... were reading it. <laughs> yes. There is All no right. such thing as a safe withdrawal rate from a volatile investment portfolio. Uh, do buffer assets reduce the effect of sequence risk? If I have a buffer asset, is it reasonable to assume a higher <laughs> safe withdrawal rate (laughs) if I'm able to avoid selling at a loss? Uh, Yes. Uh, If you have buffer assets, that can support a higher withdrawal rate than if you didn't have buffer assets. Now, specifically, when I talk about a buffer asset, I I talk about it not being part of the portfolio. It's something on the side. So when I calculate the withdrawal rate, 
it's not the withdrawal rate on the portfolio plus the buffer asset. It's just the withdrawal rate on the portfolio. And naturally, if you have something that's not part of the portfolio that you can spend from on occasion, that allows for a higher withdrawal rate from the portfolio. So just almost by definition, with buffer assets, you can use a higher withdrawal rate. But also there's the synergies of the sequence of returns risk. And this is something I talk about a lot more so in, in the reverse mortgage book, because one of the classic buffer assets is a reverse mortgage. This idea that if your portfolio is in trouble or it looks to be down relative to where you'd like it to be, being able to draw from the buffer asset temporarily, not having to sell from the portfolio helps you avoid digging a hole for that portfolio and gives your portfolio more chance to recover. And the synergies from doing that really help to increase that quote unquote safe withdrawal rate even higher. A buffer asset is one of four broad techniques for managing sequence of returns risk. And because it reduces sequence of returns risk, it can allow for a higher uh, initial withdrawal rate for that retirement plan. So you're saying a buffer asset is almost like a proxy plan B time segmentation strategy? Well, it's, <laughs> I, I treat it as, I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. No, that, this, I, I treat buffer assets as distinct from time segmentation, but they can be, sometimes they get confused or talked about as the same. When you're actually utilizing the buffer asset, yeah. it kind of is, you well, know what I mean? During the time of utilization, uh, yeah. a bucketing kind of thing for that particular time period. Time segmentation is you have a short-term bucket that you're systematically spending from to cover expenses. A buffer asset is you have this kind of short-term bucket, but it's sitting out off, off on the sidelines. You don't really treat it as part of your portfolio and you have the discretion to tap into it when necessary, but otherwise it's just sitting on the sidelines. It's kind of when I'm in the, the holiday party and I'm sitting at that table. Off by yourself in the corner. Yes, yes. No one will talk to you. Uh, yes, just waiting, watching you pass by. Not making eye contact. All your work colleagues. <laughs> Until you need me to get you a drink or something. <laughs> All right. Pension annuities and Social Security provide a guaranteed monthly benefit. But they also have the advantage of being automatic and less subject to theft, dementia issues, stress for a surviving spouse, etc. Is there a similar approach for equity investments? Something automatic. I'll just... You can't have it both ways. <laughs> you know, if you really just take a step back, you know, there is no magic in the world, right? The reason you're compensated for equity investments is because you're bearing risks. If you weren't compensated for bearing those risks, then everyone would just put it in the bond market, right? If you had the same expected return for bonds and stocks, no one would deal with the aggravation of the volatility and just buy bonds, right? Mm -hmm. And so at, at, at the heart of it, you have to start from there, just theoretically. The only reason you're compensated for investing in equities is not because it's some magical thing where, okay, I'm going to put money here and 10 years later, it's just going to be more because that's how it is. No, you're compensated for taking risk. When there isn't risks to bear, there are no returns, it, it just can't, you can't, it, it can't go the, it can't go both ways. If not, economics wouldn't work, but wait. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I guess the only thing I could offer there is 
There is something called managed payout funds. They never oh, really took off. Oh my goodness! No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they they still exist. They're they're rare. They never really took off. But it is an effort in a mutual fund with a diversified portfolio for the fund managers to kick off distributions to the shareholders to try to replicate the idea of what an annuity would do. But there's no guarantees behind it. It is so it's not going to get all the features that the annuity provides, but at least the being automatic part, well, it would still be subject to theft. Um, there still could be dementia issues unless you just leave it alone. Uh, but maybe reduce stress for the surviving spouse, not a guaranteed monthly benefit, but at least a managed a payout fund is a way to automate. the Because there's these two problems people face with an investment portfolio in retirement. One is asset allocation. The other is how much should I spend? The, the managed payout, well, any mutual fund covers the asset allocation. You have fund managers picking the assets. The managed payout fund was the additional effort to not only will the fund manager choose the assets for the portfolio, but they'll also manage the distributions from the portfolio. So to seek that professional management for both of those aspects gives you something that you might want to look at and consider. Um, but yeah, it's never going to be offering all the the advantages of insurance in that regard. Okay. Wait, I want to, I want to, I want to throw in one more question because I think we can, I think you can guess who wrote this question. Uh, and it's a good one. And we got some time here. Is that all right? Can I throw one in there? Okay. This is off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do you have any thoughts for someone who has been at the same job a very long time is basically sick of the organization, colleagues, and work. This is Bob, isn't it? Bob. <laughs> My, I, yeah, I remember seeing Damn it. I got to call Bob. Should we bring him in? Let's bring him in. Let's bring him in and, and just have him ask me and look at me in the eyes when he's saying this. Uh, no, uh, do you have any thoughts for someone who has been at the same job for a very long time, is basically sick of the organization, colleagues, and work? Mostly not their fault. I've been there for over two decades but is afraid to retire because of the uncertainties of the economy and of whether I can find a part-time job in retirement at the same level that pays as well. Do many people hang on to a played out full-time employment situation out of fear? Yeah. Let, let me text Bob real quick, see what he thinks about <laughs> No, uh, I would say, you know, real quick, just as us, we're, you know, we have, as, as someone that you know, oversees a, you know, a team, I wouldn't be surprised if people aren't picking up on, on, your, on your kind of emotional well-being already. It's one of those things, in my experience, people that eventually maybe quit or are let go of or you know, there's a transition, it's kind of something that has been brewing for a while. And if you, you know, hand over your heart, if an employer does an honest assessment, those they can see signs of it. Obviously, there's always this backcasting piece of it where you're kind of rationalizing, oh, yes, yes, putting it together. But you kind of know. And if you're feeling like this and you're writing this in, you, I, I, would, I, would, I would take a reasoned bet that their seeds of discontent are visible throughout. So just, you know, FYI. Do people hang around to play it out full-time employment situations out of fear? And also health we did insurance. This with, huh, for health insurance, perhaps. But I would say this. 
And I don't know the exact number, but we've seen studies of this, Wade. We, we've done this. I think Kyle wrote something on this. It's twice I've mentioned him in podcasts, right? He's an advisor. He's no longer with us. He retired, et cetera, voluntarily, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think people over age 50 and they're like trying to like off-ramp into retirement – I don't know the exact number, but over 50% and maybe less than 65% of them are let go of before they actually retire. So an amazing, an alarmingly high number of people are actually let go of as, you know, when in their mind, they think they're going to retire in a few years. It happens with great frequency. So I think, again, if you're really, if you're saying sick of the organization, colleagues and work, I wouldn't be surprised if that's not visible already and, you know, things are hanging, you know, things are there. So I don't, the answer is I, I think you may get let go before, you know, you, you effectively uh, retire. But this is not a retire with style income, <laughs> retirement income question. This is just kind of what we see in the data and just anecdotally what you, what you notice in, in firms. I, that's what I. That's how I would answer that one. Wait. Yeah. Well, we we did try to answer all the questions. So there was a, a small handful that I didn't put into one of the the topics because I just didn't have a lot of good thoughts on them. But and this was one of those questions. But yeah, um, healthcare can be a, a lot of people just hang on for yeah fear because they need health insurance. Now the Affordable Care Act does make that easier that if you really are not enjoying the the job or the, that you're in, even if it requires a pay cut and so forth, maybe there is something else you can do that would provide more fulfillment. And at the end of the day, not everything's financial. And I think a lot of our listeners may also, uh, they may be in good financial positions and not fully appreciate that they, everyone's always worried about running out of money. But if you do a detailed financial assessment, just look at the possibility that maybe you are able to make some changes, even if it does require less pay and, and still make things work out. And that might give you more life satisfaction than continuing at a job you really don't like. Yeah. And look, when it comes to salary, you can, you know, it's never about the money. It's always about the money, you know, that kind of thing. And I, and I get it. But if you really are, are already sick of it and I get it, it's easy for me to say, cause I don't know the entirety of the context, but if you really are sick of it and you don't find that your heart's in it, your performance probably isn't isn't in it as well and that's visible and you may be better off just looking for a job that you can also potentially part-time it into retirement if you want to you know we're big fans of the phrase retire into something not away from something and so maybe this could be a good transition spot and if it doesn't pay you as much but you're able to do it for i'm I'm making up numbers now 15 years 15 more years in a manner in which you like as opposed to biting the bullet for five years and potentially getting fired though in year three and then needing to look for something and being out of a job for four or five years or doing something really because you had no other choice and you took it, you know, there's a break even there as well. And so I'm always a big fan of take control of, you know, control what you can control. Obviously life is going to be random, but if you can control what you can control and, and, you know, nip things off at at the, at the, at the, at the bud, or if you will, I, I think that may be a, a better overall strategy because, again, well over 50% of the folks that are over 50 get fired 
before they want to voluntarily retire. And and it's not just uh, getting fired, but also health problems arise or needing to become a caretaker. But I think with all the the different possible reasons, the majority of people retire sooner than they estimated they would retire. What do you think? Wait, should we be lifestyle podcast? Should we become... I'm (laughs) (laughs) I'm more of a quantitative guy myself. (laughs) No. All right. Again, and this is not retire with style kind of material, but is asked. This is we're human beings. This is this is my take. Take it for what it's worth. All righty. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Appreciate the time as always. And uh, we're going to do more cute questions. No, this is the last Q&A episode. And I think even there was a handful of questions I didn't put into any of the the episodes. But I think we actually ended up covering most of them as there's still you have that right in front of you. Maybe there's one or two still on that list. There's Uh, one question I simply didn't know the answer to. We did documentation (laughs) on the payroll calculator. Oh yeah, that that's this been taken care. Is, of. All right, I just said that. This is where we have a obviously retire with retire retire. Sorry, retirementresearcher.com. We have effectively a, a membership site where folks can learn, and we have resources. And someone's asking about one of the resources there, the payroll calculator. I will forward this on to Bob. No, and, that, that and, we've already taken care of that separate okay. from the podcast. Oh, okay, then perfect. <laughs> and then the. The last question, it's too long for me to read, Wade, on, on the fly. But well, you're talking about it, the one that I didn't know the answer to. Oh, don't know the answer to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, how about we email that guy when we get to it? But <laughs> it seems health-related, so when we do Medicare and stuff like that, we can deal with it. All, All right. right. Sounds yeah, good. So this is the last Q&A episode. We'll, we'll move on to other topics. So, Excellent. All right, everyone. Thank you everyone. for listening in. Bye. Bye. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.